these times, O oh Lord, uh, when uh, when we cannot go out, O oh Lord, uh, to hear from your word, O oh Lord, uh, to be strengthened by your word, O oh Lord, to grow in faith, O oh Lord. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as Devon takes the uh, meeting now, O oh Lord, that you would uh, help him, uh, you would speak through him, O oh Lord, you would strengthen him, O oh Lord. Uh, uh, pray for each one of us, O oh Lord, as we spend uh, time hearing your word, O oh Lord, help us to be focused, O oh Lord, help us to hear your word, O oh Lord. We pray, Lord, that uh, uh, these doctrines, O oh Lord, would be a guide to us, O oh Lord, would uh, strengthen us and help us to hold on fast to you, O oh Lord. Thank you, Lord, once again for your care and your love all around us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you, John. So we have uh, 25 participants here already. Um, somebody has a chat. Who's that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hi, Chrislyn. Um, hi, Murli. Uh, Raymond auntie, hello. Yes, yes, hello. Good afternoon, Raymond. Good afternoon. Hi, Nathan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Raymond. And everyone right. else. Yeah, hi. Hi, Jean and Ruby. Hey, Raymond. Okay. Um, we'll get to our task right away. Um, I will share my screen with you guys. Just let me know. If you're able to see it, uh, give me just a moment. I'll share my screen with all of you. Can you all see this? Yes. Yes, we really? see. Yes. All right. Okay, that's good. <clears throat> yes, yes. Okay. So, uh, Today, oh man, can you all please mute yourself? Sammy, can you mute everybody, please? Murli, mute the mic, Murli. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. Uh, Sam, uh, please keep everybody muted uh, unless uh, we ask somebody specifically to read a verse or answer a question or something. Okay, so you can all see the slide on the screen uh, as is uh, very clear from the slide and also from the schedule that we gave. Uh, we're gonna look at the person and the work of Christ. And uh, in systematic theology, it is called Christology, right? Uh, you see the first part of Christology, it has the word Christ in it, which means we're gonna study about the person of Christ. Ology or comes from the word logos, which means the definition of, or the doctrine of, or the word of, anything like that. Uh, it all means to say that we're gonna study about the person of Christ. And also we're gonna study about the work of Christ. This is a very, very interesting topic because when you look at it, in one sense, the whole Bible is about Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, he was prophesied or he was predicted. In the Gospels, he's seen in flesh. In the book of Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, he's expected. So it's all about Christ. 
Um, that's why we need to study about the person of Christ. But much more than that, he is our Lord and our Savior. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we need to know him more. And we need to know more about him. And also we know from human experience and also from the Bible that the more you know about a person, the more it is possible for you to love him. Isn't it? Um, that always happens in relationships. The more you know, the more you get to know the person, the more you're able to love the person because you'll understand the person better. It's the same thing with our relationship with God as well and with Christ. The more you know about him, the more you understand him, the more you're able to love him. Uh, and also, since he is the author of our faith, he's the founder of our faith, we should be able to clearly define the person of Christ at least as much as is given to us in the scripture, and also defend the person of Christ. For example, when you look at the early church history, a lot of heresies came around the person of Christ. People said that he was not truly God. Some heretics came and taught that he was not truly man. He was just a ghost or a phantom. And even today, there are several wrong doctrines floating around the person of Christ. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if you, if you look at the world and what's happening around in the world, everybody seems to have an opinion about Christ. You just cannot get away, with, uh, get away from Christ. You have to have an opinion about Christ, whether right or wrong. Uh, Islam says that Jesus is just a prophet and nothing more than that. Um, and uh, you have Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe that he is God. You have the Seventh-day Adventists so you have lots of cults that don't truly understand or teach who Jesus is and what his work is according to the New Testament. And for that reason, since he is the author and the perfecter of our faith, since he is our savior, since he is somebody that we love and want to love for the rest of our lives, we must understand him well. We must understand him um, in the way the scripture truly presents him to be. So there are many ways of doing it. Uh, you have something called Christology from below. You have something called Christology from above. Uh, I'm not gonna get into all of that right now. What I've done is I have picked up some verses, all of them in their own contexts. And we're gonna interpret all these verses in their contexts and see where do they point to? What do, the, what do all these verses point to? And so um, it's gonna be a very, very simple thing. It's gonna be a very basic thing. I want all of you to understand it. And that's why uh, we're looking at some very basic things about Christology. But there is uh, intermediate level Christology. There is advanced level Christology and all of that. Uh, and uh, if you're interested, uh, if you, after this class, get more interested to study this, you can definitely talk to me personally. Uh, I can, we can either uh, guide you personally face-to-face -face or on a call, or perhaps I can direct you certain, to certain books that are uh, evangelical in nature that talk about Christology. So uh, with prayerful hearts and with uh, attentive minds, let's look at the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Yes? I know nobody wants to bell the cat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Philip. Okay. So... We will today look at the deity of Christ and also the humanity of Christ. 
the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. We need to first understand that Jesus is God. Yes, we know it. Our parents have perhaps taught about it. The church always teaches about it. Anybody who preaches in, a, uh, in the church or the cell group must have talked about it. But do we know for sure that Jesus is God? Do we know for sure what verses in the Bible say that Jesus is God? And so today we look at some of the evidences for the fact that Jesus is God. Evidences from scripture, of course, that tell us that Jesus claimed to be God. And by the way, uh, if you have any questions, just raise your hands here. Uh, there is an option for raising your hand uh, or you can interrupt me. I'm very comfortable with that. You don't have to, you don't have to think, uh, you know, Ravens will be interrupted or the flow will be lost or things like that. Don't worry about it. Uh, if you have any question, just ask the question right away. Uh, I, I may answer the question right away, but if I think that it'll be answered later on in the course of this particular session, or even tomorrow's session, uh, I will say that uh, it'll be answered later. Um, that is one thing. And uh, if you want me to repeat something, if you didn't catch it, if you didn't get it, or if you didn't hear it, obviously we are using technology here. It's possible not to hear certain things uh, or to lose track of things. So uh, please stop me right away and ask me to repeat it. I'll be more than glad to repeat that. Uh, so I have come here with the prayer that all of us listening to this would have a very clear understanding of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ as well today. Um, you know, these uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they come to a doorstep and they say, who told you that Jesus is God? Or where is it written in the Bible that Jesus is God? Now you can't pick up the phone right then and say, uh, you know, George Chen, do you have a couple of minutes? Uh, I need a couple of verses where it says in the Bible that Jesus is God. No, we'll have to know for ourselves. First, for our faith to be bolstered and strengthened. Uh, and second, for us to be able to defend our faith from, the, uh, from wrong doctrines as well. All right. So we will look at the deity of Christ. Does the Bible talk about the deity of Christ? Does the Bible say that Jesus is God? I have picked up, now again, there are several ways of doing it. I have primarily picked up verses from the New Testament. Uh, firstly, I want to look at Jesus's self-consciousness. Now, it is one thing for somebody else to attribute deity to another person. I can just whimsically, I can say that, uh, you know, XYZ is God and that XYZ may be worshipped because I believe that he is God. But did that person himself believe he is God? So the question here is, what did Jesus believe about himself? in the first place. So I'm gonna look at Jesus's self-consciousness or what did Jesus believe about himself as he walked this earth for those, you know, for those years of time that he was here. And I wanna make a statement here before we move further that Jesus made claims that would be inappropriate for someone who is less than God. Did you hear that? Jesus made claims that would be inappropriate for someone who is less than God. If anybody who is not God or anybody who is less than God, even an angel or even a great prophet, were to make the claims that Jesus has made, it would be blasphemous because those claims can only be made by God himself. 
Is that clear? Can we move forward? Yeah. All right. Okay. So is speak uh, is Philip speaking on behalf of everybody or just for himself? <laughs> everybody. Everybody. Okay. Good. So the first thing. What did Jesus believe about himself? Now, notice some of the claims that he made. He called the angels his angels, and he called the kingdom that he brought his kingdom. Now, notice in now again there are several verses, but I'm just going to look at a few verses for the lack of, uh, I know because of time constraints and all of that. Uh, but the New Testament is exhaustive, uh, and we can go into a lot more verses, but time does not allow us. But I've just taken a sample, a good sample of verses for us to get at least a clear understanding of it, or at least for all of us to touch the nerve of this doctrine. Now, notice what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 30, Matthew 30, 13 verse 41. Jesus says this, the son of man will send his angels, whose angels? His angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. He is talking about the angels as his angels. Now that's a very tall claim. And he's saying that they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. Now notice here, he's calling the angels his angels and he's calling the kingdom his kingdom. In Luke 12 verses eight and nine, Luke tells us who the angels belong to. Notice the verse here, and I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. It is very clear throughout the Old and the New Testaments that the angels belong to God. They were created by God. But here Jesus is claiming that they are his angels, which means it's a clear claim to deity. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Whose kingdom is it? It is God's kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. The very first message of John the Baptist when he came onto the scene. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the kingdom of God. And what did Jesus claim about the kingdom of God? He said it is his kingdom. He is the king and it is, it is his kingdom. So which tells us that Jesus claimed to be God by claiming that the angels are his angels and God's kingdom is his kingdom. Now that's a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? It would be foolish for any of us to make a claim like that, that the angels are mine or the kingdom is mine. Second thing, he claimed to forgive sins. We know the story. Uh, we can look at Mark chapter two, verse five, and then verses seven through 11. You know the story, the four friends of the paralytic, uh, they take all efforts to go up because the room was very crowded. They go up, they make a hole in the, in the terrace, in the roof, and then they lower the body. And look at this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And notice what the scribes and the people who are seated around understood this claim to be. Notice what the people said. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that's a very important statement 
that the people and the scholars sitting around Jesus, the theologians sitting around Jesus are making. Because in their culture, in the milieu in which they lived, they understood that nobody has the prerogative to forgive sins but God alone. And when Jesus took upon himself that divine prerogative of pronouncing forgiveness of sins, they understood that this man is claiming equality with God. He is blaspheming. And notice the next verse. And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or rise up, take up your bed and walk. Now we know on a practical level, which statement is easier to say. If somebody comes to me, if a paralytic comes to me, it is easier for me to say, son, your sins are forgiven than for me to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Why is that? Because sin is not something that you can see physically. And if I say, son, your sins are forgiven, you can't verify if the sins are really forgiven or not. But if I say, rise up, take up your bed and walk, and he's unable to do it, then I'll be proven to be a phony or a false miracle worker. But now notice what happened. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He went on to tell the paralytic, get up, take up your mat and walk. And when he walked, his walk talked a lot about who this man really is. You get the point? So Jesus pronounced forgiveness of sins and to back up that claim, he performed the miracle. So he took that particular order of forgiving his sins and performing the miracle so that the miracle would corroborate the claim that he made. And the claim that he made was he was claiming equality with God. Son, your sins are forgiven. It's a divine prerogative. You and I can't simply say that. So that's number two. He claimed to forgive sins. Now, as we go through this, keep, keep this at the back of your mind. We are thinking about what Jesus thought about himself, isn't it? So what do you think Jesus would have to think about himself if he called angels his angels, if he called the kingdom his kingdom, or if he claimed to forgive sins? He would have to think that he is God himself. So Jesus in his self-consciousness, he thought of himself as God. This is pure deity. Number three, he also spoke of judging the world. He spoke of judging the world. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 33. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Now notice this. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left now notice what jesus is saying in the old testament god is the judge of the whole world it is god who judges the world but jesus is claiming that divine prerogative for himself once again he is saying that when the son of man <coughs> sorry when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now notice what throne that is. It's a glorious throne. It's the very throne of God. And before him will be gathered all the nations, he says. 
and he will proceed to separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. In other words, he is saying the destiny of all nations, the destiny of all peoples is in my hands. Now that's a very audacious claim to make. It would be audacious if you are not God. But Jesus knew who he was and that's why he was making this claim. He spoke of judging the world. Are we going too fast or is the space okay? It's okay, oh, the space is okay. I want a couple of you to answer this please because we want to go at the right pace. It's fine, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, it's uh, okay. Any of the sisters? Okay. It's okay, all right, okay. So uh, three things we saw so far. Number one, he called the angels of God his angels. He called the kingdom of God his kingdom. Number two, anybody? He came to forgive sins. Uh, he claimed to forgive sins, that's right. That's a prerogative that is only, uh, that is only uh, with God himself. Number three, he also spoke of judging the world. Number four, he claimed authority over the Sabbath. He claimed authority over the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2 verses 27 and 28. You know the story. Uh, these disciples were walking through uh, fields of corn and then they were hungry. They took up uh, a few years of corn and they popped them in their mouth. Uh, and uh, you know the theologians around, the Pharisees come and they start questioning that they, start, they are doing work on the Sabbath. And then Jesus uh, takes them back to the Old Testament. They say that, uh, uh, he says that uh, David did this very thing. He went okay. to, the, to enter to the temple and uh, he also ate. Is there, is that a question or something? Hello? Okay, so Jesus, uh, David went to the temple and uh, he took the showbread that was only meant for the priests to eat and he ate himself and he also ate, uh, he also gave it to his friends or his companions who were traveling with him. And then Jesus made this statement. Notice this, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now that is an astounding statement in the Jewish culture. The son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Because if you go back to Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11, this is a commandment given by Yahweh himself. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now here's a point. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and uh, made it holy. Now, it is Yahweh himself who instituted the Sabbath, who gave the rules and regulations for Sabbath, and who also has the divine prerogative and the authority to change or mend the rules of Sabbath. And Jesus here is saying that he has that right. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a pretty tall claim. That's a very audacious claim. He claimed authority over the Sabbath, which means he was claiming equality with God himself. Number five, he also claimed a unique, John Mathankel, could you, could you please mute your uh, phone?
Yeah, thank you. Okay, so he also claimed a unique relationship with the Father. He claimed a unique relationship with the Father, that is God himself. Notice in John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. He's claiming that they're one in essence. He shares the very nature of God. John 14 verses 9 and 10, he said this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He's talking to Philip. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now notice, he is claiming a unique relationship with the Father that nobody else can have. Now we are all children of God, but we are adopted children of God. He is the only unique son or the only begotten son of God. He shares the very nature of God. And that's why he could claim and say, whoever has seen me <clears throat> has seen the Father, excuse me. Then Matthew eleven twenty seven. Now notice this, this is a beautiful verse. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, he is claiming a unique reciprocal relationship with the Father that nobody else can have. This is a unique relationship that he has with God or with the Father. And that is because he shares the very nature of the Father. He is one in essence with the Father, one in substance with the Father. He has God's stuff in him. The stuff that makes God God, Jesus has it. So he has a unique relationship with the Father. Any questions so far? I'll just pause for a couple of minutes because we've covered five points here. <clears throat> Can I move on? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, right. please. Um, we will, okay. Um, number six, he also claimed pre-existence. He claimed pre-existence. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now notice, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. Which means, he is not claiming that he merely had a beginning before Abraham, but he eternally existed. And he was always there before Abraham. In fact, in saying that before Abraham was, I am, he was claiming the divine name of God from Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. He was taking that very name upon himself and claiming that he was God. Before Abraham was, I am. John 3.13, he made the statement, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. It is a son of man that is Jesus himself, by the way, Jesus' favorite title in the Gospels is the Son of Man. He called himself the Son of Man. Probably tomorrow we'll look at why he called himself the Son of Man. Um, he said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Which means my origin is not from here. My origin is from heaven. It's from elsewhere, is what Jesus is saying. 
John 17, 5, the high priestly prayer, he said, and now father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a statement, isn't it? The glory that I had with you before the world existed. Um, Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, which I read some 20 years ago when I was in my college, uh, he makes one statement about this verse. And when I read that some 20 years ago, it just stuck with me. He, he quotes this verse and he says, sounds like an old man reminiscing, right? And then he says, nay, sounds like an ageless God reminiscing. Sounds like an old man reminiscing, right? He says, no, it's like, it sounds like an ageless God reminiscing. And that's exactly what it is that's happening here. He says, now glorify me uh, in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world began, which means he existed even before the world began. So he claimed pre-existence. <clears throat> Seventhly, he claimed equality with the father. Now the previous one was unique relationship with the father which means he shared the very nature of the father, but now he claimed equality with the father. Matthew 26, uh, verses 63 to 65. And the high priest, now this is the, this is the trial or the examination of Jesus before the high priest, uh, Caiaphas. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. Now he is... He is drawing Jesus into an oath and saying that I charge you by the living God. You need to speak the truth right now. Tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, you said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power on, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the son of man language we need to understand this. I think I'll get, into a, I'll get into it a little bit right now, and then tomorrow perhaps we can uh, go into it in a little detail. Remember in Daniel chapter 7, you have the figure called Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, who is God himself, and he is coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, in other, uh, that is another way of saying that he's doing God's stuff, stuff that only God does. So he's coming on the clouds of heaven and he's approaching the ancient of days. And the text says that all authority and glory and power and majesty is given and worship is given to the son of man. And even during the intertestamental period, the period that we call as second temple Judaism, in that period, also the son of man figure was the highest and the most revered of all Jewish figures. And Jesus claimed to be that son of man of Daniel chapter 7. And he says this. Remember that Daniel chapter 7, the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven, who approaches the very ancient of days, and he is given all glory and authority and power and all of that. You will see that son of man, which is me, seated at the right hand of the power of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, he is claiming to be God, seated at the right hand of God. Now, you can't sit at the right hand of God and uh, simply escape. You and I can't do that. You have to be God himself uh, to do that. So now uh, people can simply say that he is claiming about somebody else and all of that. But notice here the reaction of the high priest. 
the high priest understood the claim that Jesus was making. And the next verse says, then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? We have now heard his blasphemy, which means he understood very well, the chief priest, the high priest understood very well because he knew the scriptures that this man was claiming equality with God. There is no question about it. So he claimed equality with the father. Number eight, he accepted attribution of deity to him. And also, let me just make one more point here. See, Jesus is in his examination um, or in his trial by the high priest. So he was going to take him to Pilate next. If there was any point where Jesus could have clarified his claims and escaped death, it was at this point. He could have said, no, 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 that's not what I claimed. I never claimed to be God. I never claimed to be the son of man. I'm quoting somebody else or I'm referring to somebody else. No, Jesus doesn't do that. But, and it, it is because of this very blasphemy that they charged him and they asked, what further witnesses do we need? We don't need anything else because we've heard this blasphemy. And then he's taken later to Pilate uh, and all of that. You know the story. Next one. He accepted attribution of deity to him. When people called him God, he accepted that. John 20 verses 26 through 29. This is after his resurrection. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas is a monotheistic Jew, especially during the second temple period. Most pious Jews would wake up in the morning and they would, they would recite the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, both morning and evening. And they would also recite the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves any carved image or likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for, the life, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now Thomas recites that every day, every morning, every evening. He's a pious Jew. He's a monotheist. And yet he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepted that. Notice what he says. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And all of us seated here listening to this, we have not seen Jesus, but we have believed and we are studying about him as well. And therefore Jesus calls us blessed. My Lord and my God, he accepted attribution of deity to him. Ninth and very importantly, he juxtaposed his words with the very words of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, the Old Testament was the Bible available for them then. In their time, the New Testament was not written yet. And uh, it was the word of God. It was the scriptures or writings, as they called it. And Jesus put his words on a par with the words of the Old Testament. We know in the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, uh, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, notice the words, he is putting his words or placing his words on a par with Old Testament word of God, on a par with scripture himself, which means he's saying what I'm speaking is also the word of God because I'm God himself. Notice he says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he juxtaposed his words with the very words of the Old Testament. You, see, you read the whole chapter, you will understand that as well. Are we on time? It's 2.40. Okay, very good. Is somebody sending me some chats here? All right, number 10. He claimed power over life and death. John 5.21, Jesus said, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The son gives life to whom he will. He has the power over life and death. John 11.25, a very famous verse. Most of us ought to have it in memory. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. Or yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, uh, in 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. It's Yahweh who has the power to kill and even bring to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. It is Yahweh himself who has the power over life and death. And Jesus is claiming that power for himself. The son gives life to whom he will. I am the resurrection and the life. He claimed power over death and over life and death. 11, he called himself son of God. He called himself son of God. Now, uh, in the Bible, several people are called son of God. Uh, Israel was called the son of God. Uh, any Davidic monarch was called the son of God. Adam was called the son of God. So you have the word son of God uh, littered all over the Bible. But the way Jesus used it very clearly tells us that he was claiming that he was the unique son of God who shared the very nature of God himself. Now notice what he's saying here. John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, my father. Jesus never in the New Testament ever called God the father, our father. Now only in the Lord's prayer he says, our father in heaven, but that is something that he taught his disciples to pray. I don't think, I personally don't think that Jesus was including himself in that prayer because he had a unique relationship with the father. So notice anywhere in the gospels, he calls the father, my father. It is a unique relationship. He's a son of God, capital S. Um, so my father is working until now and I am working. John 5, 18 Notice the reaction to this. When he claimed uh, God to be his own father, notice the reaction of the people around. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews who lived in that culture understood very well 
that he was not making a general claim that he was the son of God like any son of Israel or like the Davidic Messiah, but he was claiming a unique relationship with the father, a special relationship, and he's calling himself the unique son of God, the unique son of God himself. So we have, when we look at the self-consciousness of Jesus, we saw at least 11 things from the New Testament very clearly as to what Jesus thought about himself. Now, when you look at all these 11 things, uh, let's go back and let's see all of them one by one. Number one, he called the angels of God his angels. He called the kingdom of God his kingdom. He claimed to forgive sins. He spoke of judging the world. He claimed authority over the Sabbath. He, had, he claimed a unique relationship with the Father. He claimed pre-existence. He claimed equality with the Father. He accepted attribution of deity to him. Uh, he juxtaposed his words with the Old Testament scripture. He claimed power over life and death. And finally, he called himself the unique son of God. Now, a person who does all these things, what do you think he thinks of himself? What do you think, what do you think is his own concept about himself? Who does he think he is? God. God. Does anybody else have a varying opinion? Maybe he, he knows what he is. He does know what he is. That's what he's claiming. So uh, don't let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. He was very clear who he was. And in his own self-consciousness, he was doing the God stuff, stuff that only God can do. We saw at least 11 things here. There are several more that we can't get into right now because we have time constraints. Uh, but memorize these things, at least five or six of them. And if somebody comes and asks you the question, why do you think Jesus is God? He never said, I am God. Yes, he did not. There's a reason for that. We'll get into that a little later. But he did all the God stuff. Now you have, for example, if you have a small animal that smells like a puppy, that talks, that barks like a puppy, talk like a puppy, I'm sorry, bark like a puppy, that wags its tail like a puppy, that looks like a puppy. You have a puppy on hand, right? You can't say I have a buffalo on hand because it doesn't have the attributes of a buffalo. In the same way, you have here a man who's claiming to be God and who's doing everything that only God can do. So you have God himself in front of you. So in his self-consciousness, he thought he was God and he did the stuff that only God can do. Any questions so far? Not even. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, yes, whose voice was that? It was just me. I was just saying no. Oh, Roger. Okay, okay. All right. So we'll move forward. Uh, this is what I call as a quintessential quartet. And I call that because there are four great Christological passages in the New Testament. I wanted to make a note of these four passages and study them further. We can't get into any detail here because uh, we don't have time. These, these are big passages, but these are four great quintessential, great Christological passages. Number one, John 1, 1 to 18. There, John is presenting Jesus as the God of incarnation. 
he is presenting Jesus as the God of incarnation. Now, look at the first couple of verses. I'll just take you through them. Let me just open my Bible. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The third phrase here, the Word was God. In English, uh, you would not know where the emphasis is. But in the Greek, the word theos comes first in that expression. Kahet theos and hologos, it says, which means God is, is, is given prominence there. It is highlighted in that sentence, which means he's saying that here was the word which was from the beginning, as far back as you can think into eternity. The word was there. And that word was in an intimate face-to-face -face relationship with God, nigh unto God. And that word was God himself. So he's talking about at least a plurality of persons within God. He's saying that here is God and you have two identities. There is God and there is the word. And the word was God himself. Now notice, just in case you begin to think that the word is an abstraction, notice verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. The word is a person. And notice who that person is, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us or pitched his tent among us. And we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Notice the phrase, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has exegeted him or manifested him or explained him. So he is a God of incarnation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, in a, in, was nigh unto God, was in an intimate relationship, face-to-face -face relationship with God. And the Word was God himself. And the word is a person and the word became flesh and dwelt among us as a human being full of grace and truth. And we beheld his doxa, glory, the glory of the only begotten of God. For no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who's at the father's bosom has manifested him to us. So John 1, 1 through 18, uh, John calls him the God of incarnation. The second great Christological passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He is called the God of humiliation. Uh, notice what Paul is saying here. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider himself equality with God, something to be grasped, but, make, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the passage about. Now notice what Paul is saying here. He says that who being in the very nature God, morphe is the word, very form of God, the stuff that God is made of, he's in the same nature. And yet, although he was by nature God, although he had the right to be uh, equal to God because of his very nature, 
He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or sought after. On the other hand, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He emptied himself is what it says. Now notice, he did not empty himself of his deity. Look at the phrase here. He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant. So here is God. He did not empty himself of his deity. No. Rather, what the text is saying is, there was no, uh, there was no detraction from it. There was no subtraction from his deity. Rather, there was an addition of humanity. So here is God, the second person of the Trinity. Humanity was added. And because of the nature of or the form of man that he took, uh, he humbled himself or he emptied himself. So the emptying does not consist of any subtraction from his deity. It is an addition of humanity. It is by the addition of humanity that he emptied himself because his glory was veiled. He left the prerogatives of heaven. He left the possession of heaven. He left the praises of heaven and he had to come down. So that's what it means when it says he emptied himself. It does not mean that he, he emptied himself of his deity. No, that's not possible. It's not possible for God not to be God. That's a contradictory statement. But he emptied himself in the sense he took upon humanity and there was veiled glory. He took the very nature of the servant and went to die a very shameful death, a death on a cross. But everything is reversed. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Or if I have to colloquially translate uh, Paul's phrase in Greek, God super exalted him, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the God of humiliation. The third great passage is Colossians 1 verses 15 through 23. And there it, he is the God of creation. You see that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of God. The uh, firstborn over all creation. Firstborn uh, means preeminence, supremacy in everything. He is the rightful heir to everything that the father owns. Uh, and uh, he, uh, what does the verse say? Um, he through him all things were created. So he is the source of creation. He is the goal of creation. He is the means of creation. Uh, so he is the God of creation there. You see that, right? And then you, you go a little further down. He is the head of the church, his body. He is also the uh, head of new creation, which is the church. So Colossians 1, 15 to 23, it talks about the God of creation. Lastly, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. He is the God of revelation. So John 1 uh, talks about the God of incarnation, Philippians 2, God of humiliation, Colossians 1, the God of creation, and Hebrews 1, the God of revelation. What is, how does the book of Hebrews begin? Uh, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through various times and in various ways. Uh, but in these last days, he spoke to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Jesus, as a vehicle of revelation, he is a supreme one. Uh, he's a God of revelation. And uh, when you compare it with prophets and all of that, uh, they, they, they stand no match to him because he is the God 
he is the God of revelation or he is God himself. And then you can see uh, several Old Testament passages quoted below to talk about the supremacy of the Son. But notice just one verse, Hebrews 1.8, it says, It is God the Father calling God the Son, God. Your throne, O God, endures forever. Your throne, O God, endures forever. So as a vehicle of revelation, he is a supreme one because he is God who has come in flesh. So four great Christological passages. Please commit these to memory. Uh, it's better for you to memorize the entire passages itself, but at least have the references and a few verses from these in memory. It's always good to have. So John 1, 1, uh, 1 to 18, uh, John presents him as a God of incarnation. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, Paul presents him as a God of humiliation. Colossians 1, 15 through 23, Paul again presents him as a God of creation. Uh, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, the writer to the Hebrews presents him as a God of revelation. Any questions so far? No question. Okay, is it all clear for everyone? I'd like some at least five answers from five different people, please. Not just Philip saying yes. five. Uh... Yes. 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 Okay, thank you. That's more than five. No, I, I thought Philip would just say five, uh, yes five times. No, it's, I was, okay. Now, when you come to the New Testament, um, this is, we need to look at how the New Testament writers present Jesus as God. How do the New Testament writers present Jesus as God? Even, um, yeah. Still near. Yep. So just uh, So when we try to, like, for example, if Jehovah Witness or someone tries to uh, counter all this, whatever we discussed, mm -hmm. so it is on the basic assumption that it is to, through Bible that we are going to justify all this. Yeah, absolutely. We are only going to look at the Bible, right? That is, that is uh, the Word of God. That is the inherent Word of God you saw in bibliology. Uh, so, um, but if they ask, is there? Uh, I mean, through science, or I mean, obviously okay. they will they will not agree to. Uh, if if they are going to agree, everything that is uh, said in the Bible, then the, there won't be any issue of a. Uh, 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 what do you say? You need not to justify whatever it is. Right. So, so that is a good question. Uh, now, the Bible does not merely claim to be a religious book, uh, especially the Gospels and the Book of Acts and all of that. We can say that they are historically true. They are actually historical documents, and there are the And even in New Testament studies, liberal New Testament studies, and all of that. There is something called historical Jesus studies, where a lot of liberal scholars, atheistic scholars, and all of that, they study the historical Jesus. And even for them, the primary sources about Jesus are the New Testament documents. Because uh, it is the New Testament documents that are written closer to the life of Jesus than any other document about him. It could be Cicero, or it could be Pliny the Younger, or it could be Josephus, or anybody. They only corroborate a little bit what the New Testament documents are talking about, but uh, it is the New Testament documents that are primary sources for Jesus, and they are historically true. Now, you claim that they are historically true. The burden of proof is on the other person if somebody comes and claims that they are not historically true. They have to come and show you where they are not historically true. Uh, but it is, it is almost impossible to prove that there, there are certain things in, in the New Testament that are not historically true. No, Arche uh, you know, archaeology has proven again and again 
that uh, that everything written in the New Testament is precise um, and uh, can be verified to a T and is all accurate. In fact, there was a Cambridge atheistic scholar by the name of William Ramsey. Um, he was an archaeologist. He wanted to disprove the Bible, especially uh, the writings of Luke. So he took the writings of Luke and Acts seriously, and he went around archaeological sites searching for all the places that Luke mentions in the book of Acts. Uh, he looked at the places, he looked at the names of rulers, he dug up for coins and everything, and he, an atheist this is, he came away with the conclusion and he said this, I rate Luke as one of the finest historians in the world. You can check it out. He's from Cambridge, uh, William Ramsey. He's called Sir William Ramsey. I rate Luke as one of the finest historians in the world. And he became a believer because of his digging up in archaeology and all of that. So there has been nothing that has been uncovered in archaeology or anywhere that has disproven the New Testament as uh, unhistorical. So uh, you can tell them if you don't claim that, all right, you don't claim that these are inspired inherent documents, but at least let's start with the assumption that they are giving accurate historical information. And when you look at the accurate historical information, even in history, you can show that Jesus is claiming to be God. He performed miracles to attest that. And he rose again from the dead. And there are historical evidences for that. Is that clear, Justin? Yes, no? Yes, yes. Oh, okay, okay. Any further questions on that? No, no. Okay. Um, yeah, how do the New Testament writers present Jesus as God? Now, listen to this very, very carefully. There are four ways in which the New Testament writers present Jesus as God. This is the gospel writers, uh, the epistle writers, all of these people. How do they present Jesus as God? Four ways. Number one, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. They attribute the names of God to Jesus. The Greek word theos, which means God, that's from where you get the word theology, the study of God, right? Uh, they attribute the name of God, Theos, to Jesus. For example, Paul says in um, Titus 2.13, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, a monotheistic Jew, is attributing Theos, the name of God, to Jesus. We saw John 20.28, 28. Uh, 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 Thomas came and said, my Lord and my God. Again, the word theos, my Lord and my God. Second um, Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Peter, a servant of uh, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is calling uh, Jesus Christ God. He's attributing the word theos to Jesus. And again, Paul says uh, in, in Romans 9.5, he says, talking about the history of Israel, there's other patriarchs from whom the human ancestry of Christ is traced, who is God, Theos, over all creation. He's calling Jesus God over all creation. So that's one way. And uh, they also give the name Lord Kurios to Jesus. If you go back to the Old Testament, um, Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is translated into Septuagint. Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament as Kurios, Lord. And the New Testament writers are using that word curios, Lord, and applying it to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, for example, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. 
um, when um, in the Gospel of Luke early, when uh, Mary uh, gets that vision from the angel, annunciation from the angel, she rushes to see uh, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant, and her relative Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, the baby in her womb leaped. And then she says this, why should the mother of my Lord come to visit me? Why is she calling an unborn child Lord? She's attributing to Jesus the very name Yahweh itself. Uh, so that's how the New Testament writers attribute the names of God to Jesus. Number two, they attribute the works of God to Jesus. They attribute the works that only God can do to Jesus. For example, creation. Um, he is before all things, in him all things hold together. Um, uh, Colossians 1.15, uh, Colossians 1.15, he, we just read it, Paul says the same thing. He says, uh, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, right? And they attribute power over life and death to Jesus. They attribute salvation to Jesus. They attribute judgment to Jesus. Uh, they attribute uh, creation to Jesus. So all these things, they attribute miracles to Jesus. They attribute power over the created order to Jesus. So they attribute the works of God to Jesus. Number one, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. Number two, they attribute the works of God to Jesus. Number three, they attribute the characteristics of God to Jesus. Uh, if we had studied theology proper, which we didn't do, we didn't have time, we would have seen that God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all those things. So they attribute the, char uh, the characters of God or the characteristics of God or the attributes of God to Jesus. For example, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. Uh, he was omniscient in several ways. He performed miracles. Uh, he suspended the laws of nature. He walked on water. So they attribute the characteristics that only belong to God to Jesus. And finally, they attribute the worship of God to Jesus. They attribute the worship of God to Jesus. So these are the four ways in which the New Testament writers present Jesus as God. Remember this, they attribute the names of God to Jesus. They attribute the works of God to Jesus. They attribute the characteristics of God to Jesus. And they attribute the worship of God to Jesus. Very quickly, what are the implications for us of the deity of Christ? Number one, we can have a real knowledge of God. If God has become man and we can learn more about him, we can see how loving he is. We can see how he can relate to us. We can see how he can empathize with us. We can see, uh, we can learn a whole lot more about God and have greater knowledge of God by looking at Jesus. Because when you're looking at Jesus, you're actually looking at God himself. Number two, redemption is available to us because if God has reached out and become man, it means he's come to redeem us. Redemption is within our reach. It's available to us. Number three, it means that God and humanity have been reunited. God is not sitting up there as a distant being. He has come to bridge the chasm between God and man in the person of Jesus. Number four, it means that when you and I worship Christ, it is appropriate because he is God. The, the wise men 
and they were really wise in doing this. They came from the east and they saw a little baby and yet they bowed down and worshipped him. It was appropriate because that baby is God himself. Any questions on the deity of Christ? No. It's very clear. No, the uh, is, um, is there a particular reason why he says word, you know, in John chapter one, the word was a God, word became flesh, word, word, word. We yeah. as Christians, we take it for granted. Uh, we, uh, but what is the real implication of the word? Yeah. Why did he so, use that yeah. metaphor? So he was writing it evangelistically, actually. Uh, the word meant uh, the creative power in the Greek culture. The word also meant a dynamic force. Uh, in the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew culture, the, in the Old Testament, uh, the word of God is a divine action of God. He, it is he who speaks his word, right? So he, he was actually trying to communicate both to the, the Jews and the Greeks. In the Greek culture, they, they had a very high place for word. Um, they thought it is even the creative principle of the world. And he puts, and he puts that into perspective. And he says, in the Christian sense of it, the word is not merely a creative principle. The, the word is not merely something that emanates from God as his word, but it is God himself. It is in that sense that he's writing it. Okay, thank you. It is not merely a metaphor. In fact, Jesus in the book of Revelation is called the word of God, the living word of God. Any other questions? Raven, somebody has uh, posted a question typing. Oh, posted a question typing. Uh, I don't see that. When you mention God, does it mean interchangeable to Yahweh? Absolutely. Uh, what do you mean by Yahweh? Uh, it's not from me. It's from, I just read it out. For oh, you just read the question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, see, um, that's exactly what the New Testament writers are doing here. The New Testament writers are calling Jesus Yahweh. I said, right, they called him Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word Yahweh is translated as Lord. And they are applying that very word to Jesus. So can Jesus be called Yahweh? Yes. Can the Holy Spirit be called Yahweh? We'll, we'll study that in, um, in pneumatology. The answer is yes. That gets into the doctrine of the Trinity. If we have time tomorrow, we can clarify that a little more, but I want to uh, just finish the humanity of Christ. We just have 20 minutes to go. That's why. Any questions on the deity of Christ? Raven, can I have uh, uh, the implications of deity of Christ? The third and the fourth point? Okay, I'll, I'll do something, Uncle. I'll send this PPT on the group. 
Okay, we'll move to the humanity of Christ. So the deity of Christ is done, the humanity of Christ. How do we know that Jesus was a human? He was not a ghost or a phantom, as some heretics have claimed uh, that he was. Uh, let me see, let us see the biblical evidence to show that he was really or truly human. Number one, he had a human body. Very simple. He had a human body. And the New Testament writers there is, there is a plethora of evidence about it. Uh, the New Testament is inundated with evidence about it. For example, 1 John uh, 1, 1 and 2. Um, it says this, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. So in the Greek thought especially, um, if you're able to touch something, then that is real because it doesn't pass through any medium is what they thought. Uh, but words would pass through medium. That is at least the air. But if you touch something, you could directly handle that. And John is, John is playing on that. John is writing it and he's saying this, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which means he had a human body. He was not a ghost or a phantom. The life was man made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. Throughout the Gospels, you see that Jesus had a human body. We don't have to go into any references about that. Number two, Jesus had a family tree. Now, you and I have family trees. I can trace who my parents are, who my grandparents are, probably my great-grandparents as well, but can't go beyond that. But Jesus had a long genealogy uh, given to us both in Matthew, going all the way back to Abraham, um, and in Luke, going all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God. So Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke, uh, from verse, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, he is talking about Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, and being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. He was the son of uh, Heli, and on and on and on, till verse 38, where he shows that he was the son of Adam. Okay, so Jesus had a family tree. It's every human would have a family tree. He was truly human. Number three, Jesus had human experiences. Um, Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, Jesus was truly human. He went through all the human experiences that you and I went through. So when he was a baby, uh, he cried for milk. Um, his diapers had to be changed by his mother. But Raven, he was God. Yes, he was truly human. Uh, his mother had to teach him language. So his mother would probably come and say to him, uh, Jesus, the color of sky is blue. And the color of leaves is green. So uh, he, he had all human experiences, just like you and I. He was truly human. He didn't have a divinized humanity. We'll talk more about that tomorrow, but he was truly human. And that's why he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature and in favor with God and man. Next one, Matthew 4.2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, we all relate to that, isn't it? I'm hungry, having spoken for the last one hour, 15 minutes. Uh, 
he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. It is a human experience. John 19, 28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. You get thirsty, I'm thirsty. Bangalore is now hot. We're all thirsty. Jesus thirsted. Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus thirst, uh, which means he, he, was, he was truly human. Uh, John 4, 6. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he, was, he became tired. He grew weary. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So notice he was weary. It's a human experience. Uh, we don't have somebody walking around with a halo there. He was truly human. And anybody who saw him saw him in a human body and could relate to him as a human. He had human experiences. Number four, he suffered and died. And can you get more human than that? He suffered, just like all of us, and he died. I'll just read one verse for you. John 19 verses, uh, took a couple of verses maybe, John 19 verses 33 and 34. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water, a very sure sign of death. Uh, we know from medical um, attestation that it is called pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. So blood and water came out, which is a sure sign of death. He suffered and he died. Number five, he had human emotions and human intellect as well. John 13 verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, it's a human emotion, it's a love, was reclining at, at table at Jesus' side. Matthew 9 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Again, a human emotion. He had compassion for the crowds because they were, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 3, 5, and he looked around at them with anger, human emotion once again, and grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. So he was uh, angry. He also grieved. Uh, Luke 7, 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. This is talking about uh, the faith of the centurion. Um, so he marveled at the faith of this person. It's a human emotion. You marvel at something. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Perhaps the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, he wept. It's a human emotion again. This is at the death of Lazarus, his friend. Jesus wept. Mark 9, 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long, this is, this is the father of the epileptic son, how long has this been happening to him? Uh, it's a genuine question that Jesus wanted to know as a human. How long has this been happening to him? How long has this epilepsy been with him? Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day, this is the second coming. Concerning that day or that hour, no man knows, nor even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father. So that knowledge uh, the son did not possess in his humanity. He was truly human. And uh, so he had human emotions and human intellect as well. Now you have, uh, you have a plethora of verses once again to talk about the whole gamut of emotions that he, that he experienced. You can go through that in the New Testament. I just took uh, a sample. Hey, Devendru. Yes. Bishwadeep uh, here. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah. Can you hear me, bro? Yes, very well. 
yeah so uh, this uh, attributes like love or compassion or anger mm-hmm. uh, isn't that god's attributes as well sure they they can be done by god as well uh but look at uh, but look at things like jesus wept um asking the question how long has this been happening to him and not having knowledge about something all these are human emotions or uh, all these are limitations that come with humanity or human attributes so just because we have see the thing is at the end of the day we are made in the image of god and, and therefore we do exhibit certain attributes of god they call communicable attributes of god and so love is something that has been com- that is a communicable attribute of god that we also exhibit uh, anger in the right sense we also exhibit compassion we also exhibit because we are made in the image of god that doesn't mean that we are not human okay i get it yeah number 6 he had a religious life now this is a very interesting course he came to and as his custom was he went to the synagogue on the sabbath day jesus went to the synagogue on the sabbath day as his custom was he been trained that way right from childhood to go to the sabbath uh, i'm sorry to go to the synagogue on the sabbath and he stood up to read um he had a religious life luke 6:12 in these days he went out to the mount to pray and all night he continued in he prayed as well to god number 7 he identified himself as a man matthew 4:4 but he answered it is this is uh, the temptation experience but he answered it is written man shall not live by bread alone of course he is quoting deuteronomy but he is taking that verse and applying it to himself and he's saying i'm a man and two a man shall not live by god who identified himself as a man john 8:40 but now you seek to kill me a man he calls himself a man who has told you the truth but i heard from god this is not what abraham did hebrews 10:5 consequently when christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me a human body he had a human body he identified himself as a man Luke 24:39 this is after his resurrection see my hands and my feet that it is i myself touch me and see for a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that i have so he identified himself as a man so he is truly god uh we saw the evidences for deity he is truly man we saw the evidences for humanity we we'll just look at the implications of humanity number 1 the atoning death of christ uh can truly avail for us as a human jesus can die and did die as a substitute and and as a representative as well he died instead of us and he died for us only a human can die that way for another human um jesus can truly uh sympathize with and intercede for us he knows our emotions he knows what we go through and that's why uh, he is called our great high priest who is able to sympathize with us and he's also interceding for us jesus can be our example peter talks a lot about it that uh, we ought to follow his example number 
It means that God is not far removed from the human race, but he has come to become one of us and he has experienced all that we go through except sin. Now, he is truly God, Veridios, and he is truly man or truly human, which is very homo. How do these two natures come together in one person, the divine nature and human nature? How do these two natures come together and how are we to understand it? Uh, this is a very difficult thing, which we'll get into tomorrow. But for today, I wanted to show you that he has a truly divine nature. He is God, truly God, and he, is, he has a truly human nature. He is in all aspects man, save the nature of sin. So he is truly God and truly man. He has two natures. We all have one nature, just the human nature. But Jesus has two natures, divine nature and human nature, both of them coming together in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. How to understand that? We'll look at it tomorrow. And that is called hypostatic union. Please don't miss the class tomorrow. Uh, if you understand tomorrow's class, you'll understand most of Christology as to how these two natures come together in one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is both God and man. Any questions, please? Ravant, I had a question. Yes. Um, in Sandra, Mark right? 19, yeah, yeah, it's Sandra. Yeah. Um, you said that Jesus had limited understanding as a man, like he could relate to that part of being a man, not having limited knowledge of things. So that's why he asked how long has this been happening to him? Yeah, I think he was truly human. He was not, uh, see, the text does not give us any indication that he was testing the father of the epileptic. Uh, to see if he would give the right answer or anything like that. But it was a genuine question that Jesus asked in his humanity. How did that happen to him? But if he was uh, fully God, then wouldn't he know? Yeah, see, so we'll, we'll study that tomorrow. How do these two natures come together? That's what we need to understand. Okay. So tomorrow, Thanks. most of the questions... See, the thing is, it's, it's very tough to answer some questions unless we understand how do these two natures come together in one person? Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? Let me see the list and start picking names for people to ask me questions. Shefin, one question. But is uh, very homo, very which language? That's Latin. We'll study that tomorrow. Okay, there are questions here. Uh, oh my. Hey, I just asked the question verbally. Okay, I did not see the chat, please. Can you explain the word juxtaposed? The word juxtaposed means to compare one with another or to put two things alongside for the sake of comparison. Okay. Um, then what else is there? Just hold on, okay. Is that a question? When you mention God, does it mean, okay, that's been answered. Okay. All right. Um, okay, I'll pick up people. Uh, Blessa, one question from you.
Blessing George. No, uh, blessing has gone to. Uh, I mean, All right, okay, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, let's say. Um, Manoj, any question? No, Raven. Um, I'm still processing it, so maybe I will have one in a day or two. Okay, sure. Sorry, could you be could you be clear, please? I I can't hear you. Sorry, uh, if there are no other questions, I have a question. Exactly. Can't hear you, Bani. Telling uh, if you have any question, you will post it. Okay. Um, show with any question. Sorry, Bani, I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry, I didn't know you were still talking. Okay, why did Jesus pick on the Sabbath? What do you mean, why did he pick on the Sabbath? Pick what on Sabbath? As if starting an argument. Oh, uh, oh you're talking about uh, the things that Jesus did on the Sabbath? Okay, so uh, the Pharisees uh, had uh, multiplied rules about the Sabbath, which God himself had not given. And so uh, there are certain things that Jesus did, which according to the Pharisees, in their rules and uh, rule book, uh, was like working on the Sabbath. It was their definition of work and their definition of things. So when Jesus did the right thing, they thought he was working on the Sabbath and violating the Sabbath. But Jesus actually was not violating the Sabbath because he came to give life and it is, it is, uh, it is only right to give life to people on the Sabbath. Uh, I'll just wait for two more minutes for any question. And uh, if there isn't, we'll just stop it right here. It's 3.31. Joy, do you have any questions? Raven Daya? Yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah, go on. Will you also be addressing about the Spirit of God tomorrow? Can no, uh, no, that's a different study. I think Jobin will be taking it. Okay. Uh, that's pneumatology. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Jean and Ruby? Um, Raven, can you just tell uh, what did you actually mean by incarnation? That part I didn't really get it. Uh, what did I mean by the word incarnation? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, the word incarnation means to take upon flesh, to become a man. So incarnation means God actually took upon flesh. He became man. Okay. How did you relate it to the begotten son? 
John one. John one. Yeah. So um, it says in verse fourteen, right? The Word became flesh. The Word took upon flesh, and pitched his tent among us, made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory. So God incarnated. God became man. That's what John is saying. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And I don't know if this question is relevant, but um, when Jesus was a kid, say three years or four years, did he know that he is God? Uh, I don't want to answer the question for uh, for different reasons, please. Uh, so don't okay. don't get into such questions. Just uh, right. yeah. Anything else? Okay, we'll, we'll stop right here. Uh, since uh, Biswadeep had a lot of questions, I'll ask him to close in prayer. Biswadeep, can you close in prayer, please? Well, sure. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time that we had learning from your word about the attributes of God. I thank you so much, Lord, for strengthening Revan Bhaiya to share and to teach from your word, Master. Thank you so much for the time that you took to prepare. Thank you so much for the setup. Thank you so much, Lord, for uh, this provision that you have given us, Father. Even though we are apart, even though we are locked down, but I thank you so much for this fellowship that is continuing. Lord, you have been so good and faithful to us. Father, whatever we have learned from your word, would you please help us so that we would be able to apply it in our lives and help us, God, so that uh, through these passages that we learned, through this uh, nature of God that we understood and about which we studied today, help us, Lord, so that this will only motivate us to understand more about who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit of God is, and may this enable us to love you more. May this enable us to, to worship you more, Master. Uh, even the upcoming session, I submit it into your hands and uh, may your grace be upon each and every single one of us, Lord. Thank you once again for this time. Thank you for uh, this time of fellowship. We submit all of us into your loving hands and I pray that your spirit will work in each of our hearts. Thank you for hearing us, Master. We give you the glory and honor and praise for thou art worthy. In Christ's most precious name, we thank and pray. Amen. Thank All right. You. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining in. We'll see you tomorrow again at uh, 2 p.m. sharp. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. See you tomorrow. Bye. Thanks, Raven. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye.